out there mushing crackins. I almost feel sorry for them Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters where we explore the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 11, The Incumbent, 1948. I'm Keith Billy. As has been my custom here, I like to kick off with a little bit of listener response. Um, Today I've got a question from Bill in Cloquet. Bill asks... You talk a lot about the Pacific, of course, but what was happening in the Atlantic during all this? Thanks for the question, Bill. It's a good one. Um, I I think I've bounced off this a little bit, but I've never addressed it as openly as I should. The short answer is nothing was happening in the Atlantic, um, in the 40s and 50s anyway. We know this changes later, but that's beyond the scope of the show, or at least this season of the show. Um... People in the Atlantic, both military and civilian, kept expecting the creatures to turn up, and they never did in the Atlantic at that time. There was a lot of paranoia, a lot of um, false sightings, but nothing ever happened. Um, transatlantic shipping, you know, proceeded basically unmolested, except, you know, when it was molested, it was because people freaked out because they thought they saw something. Um, in military terms, not that much was going on, really. There was a little bit of, as time went on, the U.S. and Soviet Union kind of bumped elbows a little bit. That was more in the Baltic and the North Sea. Um, and frankly, that occurs you know, later in the timeline than we've gotten right now. Um, you know, we, we will start to see things back into Europe, but we're, we're not there yet. Um, within the U.S. Navy, there was definitely a thing that sailors and officers who drew duty in the Atlantic were relieved, um, but they also kind of ate a lot of shit from people serving in the Pacific. Um, and, you know, yeah, again, everyone was very paranoid just waiting for the Atlantic version of this to break out, and it, it really never did in the 40s and 50s. So yeah, thanks again for the question. Uh, please keep them coming. I, I love love getting feedback. I love getting questions. Then let's let's get into it. Last week we talked about the shocking announcement by General Art Peters that Hawaii was seceding from the United States and letting the Soviet Union know that he was interested in you know getting together for a drink sometime and having a nice talk, see what sparks. Um, Then we talked about the uneasy status quo that settled in afterwards, with the U.S. Navy reorganizing itself into task forces that sort of huddled around West Coast ports in a defensive posture, trying out exotic new ship defense systems like the electric deck defense and the so-called ring of fire. This week, what's it like to run for re-election when you've been losing a war to sea monsters? As 1948 dawned, the United States entered the meaningful part of a new presidential election cycle. The country faced a political landscape almost entirely unprecedented in the history of the nation. There had been elections during wartime before, of course, even during wars that weren't going well. And there had been elections during recessions and times of political unrest. Many of these conditions had been met by elections that had happened within fairly recent memory for people still alive and voting. But, as Harry Truman set about seeking re-election, 
He was arguably the first man in nearly a hundred years to do so as the wildly unpopular incumbent holding office in a nationwide depression caused by a conflict locked in disadvantageous stalemate. Only Abraham Lincoln in 1864 had faced broadly similar conditions, and Lincoln was likely only reprieved at the last minute by General Sherman's capture of Atlanta. Like Lincoln, Truman began his re-election effort expecting to lose, although he did his best to project confidence, both to bolster his political chances and because he felt that appearing confident and steadfast in the face of uncertainty was the mark of a good leader. Also like Lincoln, Truman felt that his best chance for beating the odds and winning re-election lie in success in the field. Although he was careful to make it clear that political conditions would not be driving his military decisions, several aides recount Truman stating matter-of-factly that he was cooked, his word, unless during the summer or fall he could come up with a way to break the defensive stalemate in the Pacific. For their part, several Republicans who announced their candidacies faced substantially more easily negotiable ground. Their task, after all, was simply to hammer Truman on his repeated failures against the creatures and then differentiate themselves from other Republican candidates with the strength and character of their hammering. A crowded pack announced in January that they would be seeking the nomination. Thomas Dewey, who had lost to the FDR Truman ticket in 1944, was perhaps the most prominent of these, although he was somewhat tarnished by his previous loss. Other contenders included Minnesota's Harold Stassen, California's Earl Warren, and Robert A. Taft of Ohio. All of them campaigned heavily on pointing out Truman's shortcomings and proposing their own surefire but vague ways to regain the initiative against the sea creatures. Douglas MacArthur at this point retired from the army in frustration and returned to the United States after a frankly just mind-blowing journey across the world. Remember, he couldn't cross the Pacific. So MacArthur travels from the Philippines across Asia, Europe, and the Atlantic. And um, the, the trip against Asia, across Asia is just, it's amazing the lengths this guy went to. He goes, I can't remember it entirely, but it, it's the Philippines to Singapore, I think, to India to Iran, um, you know, just swinging around south of the Soviet Union until he can travel through North Africa to get up into Europe. Uh, the determination that MacArthur showed to get around the world to give Harry Truman hell is insane. So yeah, as MacArthur comes back, he was watched carefully as a potential late entrant to the presidential race with a great deal of potential to upend things. But, at least in the early months of 1948, MacArthur declined to get involved in the campaign, including a refusal to get behind any of the declared Republican candidates, um, beyond the only thing he would do was loudly and repeatedly stating that Truman was a poltroon whose cowardice and ineffectiveness had brought shame and ruin upon the country. In February of 1948, a short, surreal interlude dominated the headlines for a few days, and briefly grabbed the attention of the nation. The American novelist and adventurer Ernest Hemingway announced from his home outside of Havana, Cuba, that he was, quote, tired of seeing these goddamn squids and such cause such a fuss, end quote, and that, quote, I feel like I know a thing or two about how to put sea life in its place, end quote. Accordingly, 
Hemingway was reconvening the ragtag crew he had worked with during the war hunting U-boats in the waters around Cuba in his yacht, the Pilar. Privately, Hemingway told friends that he thought he would be able to take out creatures up to at least the secondary class by having the two former high ally players in his crew throw grenades at them as the beasts approached. Quote, I'd love to see what those bastard sea serpents think when Eduardo throws a grenade down its throat, end quote, he boasted to his entourage at the bar of the Hotel Floridita in Havana. Hemingway and his crew set out on the Pilar from Cuba on February 6th to great fanfare, writing a wave of admiration and congratulatory telegrams. With the Panama Canal still inoperable, Hemingway and crew would have to sail the Pilar around Cape Horn, a voyage of many weeks. The novelist minimized the disruption. Just gives us a chance to work on all of our drills, he told the Kansas City Star. Pilar had only been at sea for around a week, though, when the aging yacht's motor developed problems off the coast of Venezuela, forcing Hemingway and crew to put into Caracas for repairs. Once there, the writer and his entourage established themselves at the lavish Hotel Palacio. When word came back that the repairs would take longer than expected, Hemingway shrugged it off, noting that, quote, I have no doubt that there will still be many squids and serpents left for us to dispatch whenever we get to the Pacific, end quote. After a few weeks of drunkenly holding court at the hotel bar, Hemingway's interest waned. By the time Pilar was seaworthy again in early March, he had decided to return to Havana to work on a novel about a young Venezuelan woman who falls in love with a dashing American yacht captain. In the Pacific, any notion of the Navy regaining the strategic initiative was purely theoretical. The conditions of 1947 held into 1948. The Navy remained huddled in its task forces, guarding the ports, rarely venturing out into open seas except for occasional reconnaissance missions, many of which disappeared without a trace. In San Diego, Sinkpack Command had metastasized into a large complex on Coronado Island. The Trumbull Group and its associated ONI Creatures Menace Task Force continued to study the creatures and the challenges that they posed to the fleet. Information flowed into Coronado Island nonstop, from the ships on patrol in the harbors, from reconnaissance missions venturing out into the open ocean, from a network of observers up and down the coast, and even from a few loyalist holdouts in Hawaii. The ONI group, functionally led by the pioneering civilian mathematician Dr. K. Hendry, worked to answer one question above all. How many of the sea creatures were there? Of course, there were other questions they were interested in, too. If possible, where were these creatures coming from? Were their numbers stable? What was driving them? Down the hall, the Trumbull group had a theoretically simpler task to work out tactics to thwart the creatures to figure out how to convert the U.S. Navy once and for all from a force designed to sink enemy ships to a force designed to kill sea monsters. Hendry's team, disquietingly, saw a clear answer emerging to at least one of their questions. It wasn't easy to get a clear estimate of how many creatures there were in terms of exact numbers. But the increased frequency of sightings and encounters, the larger amounts of ocean surface being roiled in these sightings, and the average size of the creatures observed, all led to an unavoidable conclusion. However many of them there were, the numbers appeared to be growing quickly, 
and the creatures themselves seem to be growing. All of the known primary creatures, El Pulpo, Blackjack Kraken, the Kelp Man, and Seagird the Sea Serpent, to use their popular newspaper names, were showing at least modest growth. And a quick aside here, I think I've mentioned him in passing, but let's formally introduce Seagird the Sea Serpent. The last of the big four primaries to emerge, Seagird was a mammoth sea snake with a head armored with bony protrusions, a mouth filled with razor-sharp teeth, and jaws capable of exerting unbelievable amounts of pressure. Seagird had a 200-foot-long, heavily-muscled body that could be wrapped around the hull of a ship and then squeezed inward like the attack of a gigantic anaconda. Seagird's body was also covered in thick scales that served as effective armor against ships equipped with hull razors. Anyway then, by this point, a significant number of lesser creatures, perhaps as many as 20, had grown enough to differentiate themselves from the broad mass of lesser creatures, and these now received their own subcategory as secondary creatures, Several of them were as large now as the primaries had been on their first sightings back in 1945. And even the lesser creatures were being reported as larger when they were being sighted now. So, in other words, the scope of the problem was clearly growing and risking getting even further out of hand. In March, the teams at Coronado Island got a chance to observe the problem firsthand. Black Jack Kraken emerged from the waters approaching San Diego surrounded by a small contingent of lesser creatures and moving directly for the San Diego naval base. San Diego's defensive detachment, Task Force 44, converged quickly. First on the scene were the destroyers Fitch and Monaghan, which charged the creatures and began blanketing the waters around them with depth charges. Black Jack still got close enough to tentacle-lash the Fitch, the monster was partially thwarted by the ship's blade ring, but still managed to knock significant parts of the Fitch's superstructure askew, rupturing fuel lines, which would then cause grievous fires afterwards. Dive bombers from the nearby San Diego Naval Air Station swarmed the scene, sequentially dropping 1,000-pound bombs filled with a new incendiary weapon, a highly flammable jellied gasoline called napalm. Now, napalm had been developed during the war, and was used some in the Pacific Theater as a defoliant. The variant introduced for use against the sea creatures in 1948 had been developed by chemists at the University of Florida in conjunction with the Navy's Bureau of Ordnance, and was officially designated Napalm Sea or Napalm Charlie if you were you know, really into the, the lingo. The sea variant behaved much like the original, but was formulated to cohere and float more effectively when dropped on seawater creating a more durable flame barrier on the ocean. Anyway then, when the dive bombers off San Diego dropped several tons of napalm sea into the ocean, the resulting inferno was enough to drive blackjack and the lesser creatures from the scene, although at great cost. Both the Fitch and the Monaghan were caught up in the conflagration, unable to get clear before the fires got too intense to save the ships. The two destroyers were mourned, but overall, the Coronado Island teams were heartened by what they'd seen. If napalm continued to be this effective, maybe there was hope that naval aviation could become useful in the fight again. Maybe that would help bring about the return of the initiative in the Pacific. Of course, a great deal more napalm would need to be created to be useful. 
The action off San Diego had used up over 60% of the Navy's stockpile of the experimental new substance. After a bruising public and backroom nomination process through the spring of 1948, in June, Thomas E. Dewey received the presidential nomination on the first ballot at the Republican National Convention in Philadelphia. Dewey's acceptance speech was brisk, savaging Harry Truman for, quote, losing the Far East, losing Hawaii, losing the Pacific, and losing the peace, end quote. Dewey's speech was well-received, but he was almost immediately upstaged by Douglas MacArthur, a featured participant at the convention now speaking at an American Legion Hall in Philadelphia, when he issued a fiery denunciation of Truman's, quote, cowardice, and accusing the president of stabbing the American fighting man in the back, especially in Japan and Hawaii. Throughout the rest of the summer, MacArthur served as Dewey's most valuable campaign surrogate, crisscrossing the country to denounce Truman to swelling, furious crowds howling for blood. Truman, for his part, kept his campaigning to a minimum. When asked, he said that he considered it his duty as president to focus his energies on the nation, not on seeking re-election, and that he hoped the voters of the United States would take that into account when they made their decision. Privately, he continued to tell confidants that he thought that campaigning would be pointless because the election would be won or lost on his ability to connive to improve the status quo in the Pacific. But the route towards this change in the status quo remained obscure. Within the White House and Department of Defense, there remained vague hopes that the sea creatures would stumble into a disadvantageous engagement and accidentally give the Navy a big public win. But at that moment, there were of course no plans whatsoever to force this kind of decisive engagement and create the conditions for this big win they were hoping for. And that is it for this episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. Um, I mean it when I say I appreciate it every time any person hits play on one of these. It is just the greatest thing. Please join me next week as the sea creatures test the Navy's notion that they could be kept out of ports. And uh, also, whatever happened to that Admiral Halsey fella? Thanks very much, and be well. Them squids, they didn't think about just who they was attacking. Way anchor, boys. Get out there and bust them crackings. I almost feel sorry for them serpents we've been tracking. Battle stations, boys. Get out there and bust them crackings. Line up all them battleships and send us seafood packing. Train them guns out, boys. Get out there and bust them crackings. Dee dee.